Hi, and welcome back to a new episode of the Unplugged Debate. Over on our Instagram, we have the Digital Minimalism Month of March going. If you've missed the first week, not to worry. Out tomorrow, we have a giveaway for one of our Unplugged card boxes. This is to help you on your digital minimalism journey. So come join us on Instagram at the Unplugged Me. So until then, let's get back into the podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Unplugged Debate. On this podcast, we delve into the ideas surrounding human interaction with both nature and technology, talking to people about their time in the outdoors, starting from when they were younger all the way through to present day, developing a picture on who and what motivates them to be outside and why they do the things they do in the outdoors, crossing over into talking about their technology usage and how that's changed throughout their life and speaking to them about the different types of technology they use on a day-to-day basis from their mobile phones to their running shoes. Once we've developed a good picture of them, we incorporate that into how they think technology has changed their outlook on life and their time in the outdoors. And finishing with how they think technological development has changed society on a wider scale. So hello and welcome. On today's episode, we have Kelly Krieber. Kelly is from Canada, from the province of Alberta, and she studied at the University of Alberta, getting her degree in education. Um, And you successfully have traveled around the world teaching since you got your degree, haven't you? Yes, that is correct. That is correct. Um, So you are in China at the moment, uh, teaching in in an international school. Yeah, so this is my fifth year teaching in Shanghai. Um, Before that, I obviously taught back home in Canada for about a year or two. And even before I was a qualified teacher, I traveled around the world and I actually did some volunteer work and I was teaching in uh, Costa Rica and as well as Peru. So I've always had this love of teaching as well as love for traveling. And I'm very fortunate that I can combine those two passions. And yeah, it's kind of taken over my whole life. And yeah, I've been in China for five years and looking forward to see what's next. Nice. And you've, um, you've just completed your master's in education as well through the University of Essex last year, didn't you? Yes, I completed my master's through a pandemic. Uh, not the best timing, but I'm still proud of that accomplishment. I'm glad it's over. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Well, I mean, to be fair, um, a distance learning course whilst just sitting at home can't be that bad. Uh, I mean, everyone assumes like, oh, you were in lockdown, you were in quarantine, you must have had so much time to do your studies. But Obviously, I still had a full-time job as a teacher, and I was still teaching eight to four every single day online. It's not like I magically stopped, and it's very sad that people have that kind of stereotypical view that the pandemic meant all the teachers weren't working or weren't working as hard, because in my opinion, that was absolutely not the case and in fact it was more hours because it it just kept going there was no break whereas 
you know, in normal everyday life, you get into your car, you go to work, you come home and you have that physical separation. But during the pandemic, there there was none of that. So uh, I was constantly staring at a stream, a screen. And uh, yeah, it was not easy. No. Um, I I mean, I, I need that physical separation as well when I go to work and and when you're at home home is relaxing or doing something for yourself rather than doing your work I get that um but you grew up in Canada and and obviously in um Edmonton Alberta so you're right in the north there you've got huge amounts of area to explore um and you said that you used to just go out cycling around in your neighborhood until the street lights came on um and then because it's Canada as well, you get that huge swing in seasons. So you have snow for six months of the year. Um, so you uh, were a skier and uh, we were just having this conversation. You you uh, would sled down hills or uh, yeah, sled down hills uh, or snowshoeing. <laughs> and you said that, that that was a thing that you learned in school is that they sort of encouraged you um, rather than saying the word force. But um they encourage you to be able to use snowshoes and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I was so spoiled growing up. It was just so much empty space, so much open space, Um, especially in Alberta. It's very balanced where we have lakes, we have mountain areas. If you go towards the South, we kind of have like this like fossil um, kind of hoodoos area with a lot of rich history. So uh, in the summertime, there's tons of stuff to do. Everyone's always out. Like you said, as, as a kid, I was always outside um, riding my bike with the neighborhood kids, playing in the sprinklers, uh, typical things. And obviously it's very cold <laughs> in Canada, but that never really stopped us from going outside, which I really enjoyed. Now as an adult, I have such fond memories of being outside in the winter time and just saying oh it's cold outside let's stay in that wasn't an excuse especially with school Uh, we had to go outside for recess up until minus 25 degrees celsius that was the cutoff so unless it was really cold which it did get to uh we were always you know thrown outside so yeah never the wrong weather always the wrong clothing (laughs) yeah you learn real quick to wear the right clothing yeah and so when you when you were younger that was sort of so grade seven you were saying which is year eight over in the UK uh you were part of a summer school and you were doing the junior forest warden uh stuff which you'd also won a competition to go and speak to the Canadian government specifically the cabinet minister for the environment um and spoke to him about your Uh, declining wood population due to a pine beetle that you had so and you attributed that to your mum basically is that is that that she encouraged you to be outdoors yeah so we were always thrown outdoors uh because of school and and other things but uh my mum was also very young mum so she had a lot of energy and she was always outside with us which was fantastic and her line of work is actually to do with 
the Alberta government environment sector. So as a kid, she was always reminding us like, okay, take shorter showers, turn off all the lights. And yeah, she would always talk about how the environment was changing and we'd go camping and we'd look at the dirt together and she would say, oh, this is blah, 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 blah. So I was constantly learning from my mom. Um, again, her bringing her occupation into our everyday life, I think was a huge factor for me growing up. And I think it was why I was so eco-conscious, even as a young child. Um, when I tell other people about my summer camp and how it was like an eco-conscious summer camp, they think, oh, you're such a weird kid. But to me, I absolutely loved it. I loved talking about sustainability. I loved learning how to, you know, recycle materials in the in the wild to survive. It was so interesting and yeah, a huge passion of mine as a young kid. So yeah, Junior Forest Wardens is a lovely program. I believe it's still running. I really hope it is. And they do summer programs for children. I think I started going even when I was like six or seven years old, maybe seven or eight up until like 15, 16. So several summers of my life uh, spent at, <laughs> at my eco-conscious camp. And yeah, another reason why it's a big part of my life. So you said that your it was a lot to do with your mum that you got outside. Um, so when when did it really start for you? Because you said you were going camping and stuff like that. So you said it was a young age, but sp yeah, let's be specific. When when did it all start? I think for me, um, I was very fortunate enough. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side. Uh, built his own cabin in the woods. Mm. Um, he owns the land and it was uh, pretty much off grid. So we have electricity there, but no running water. Mm -hmm. And even when my mom was young, she would go to that cabin and it was kind of like a family tradition. And yeah, ever since I can remember, my summers were going to the lake house, swimming in the lake, getting dirty, flipping over rocks to find worms and snakes and all sorts of fun stuff. So um, really young. And so your mum, your mum was, uh, you said she worked for the, uh, the environmental side for the government. So I guess she would be quite knowledgeable in teaching you all about the um, different types of trees and the different fungi and stuff as well yeah um when I was younger she was yeah very good reference for sorts of things like that but as she progressed in her career it became more of a analytical uh standpoint where she was doing data analysis and, and things like that so um, not so much practical hands-on work but still very knowledgeable nonetheless and um, why didn't you ever think of becoming a park ranger or following your mum into what she was doing? That's a great question. I think for me, uh, I could see that her job was a typical office job. And there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. 
um, at all, especially in Canada, the, the government jobs are so stable and they're very sought after for that stability. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not, you know, saying anything negative about that, but for me, I think just with my personality, I was better suited, um, for teaching. <laughs> I'm very open and friendly and bubbly, and I've always done well with kids. I've always done well with public speaking and talking with others. And although eco-friendly and eco-conscious aspects were really important in my life, I think ultimately I just love teaching more. And of Mm. course I can integrate the outdoors and my love for um, the ecosystems and all of that into teaching. But I think that's why. Fair enough. And so you said it sort of carried on until you were 16 um, because you were doing um, these summer schools during up, up to that point, or you were doing the junior forest warden stuff. Um, as, as you sort of left your yeah mid, mid-teenage years, so 16 and above, what did, did it carry on or did you move away into wanting to go teaching? Did the outdoors stay in your life, basically? Outdoors stayed in my life, uh, but they weren't as prominent. Um, When I hit 15, that's when I got my first real job. I was working as much as I could. Um, I was also balancing my high school academics. I was also playing sports um, a lot. So I think for me, I just didn't have as much free time time. Um, instead of my summers being completely open and family oriented, I was, you know, having my driver's license, having my first car, uh, being able to choose what I did with my time. And obviously as a young 16 year old, I wanted to make my own money. So that kind of dominated, uh, my life up until I started university and as you know, once you're in university, that is your whole life. So yeah, I think around 15, 16 was that shift in perspective. Um, and so you said you sort of tried to mix the your youth of being outdoors into your teaching as well. Um, so how, how do you try and do that? Because obviously, as a teacher, you'll have to follow a, curic- a curriculum. Um, and so do you have those sorts of topics in your curriculum that you can teach or do you just mix it in? It definitely depends what grade you have and your subject background. So for me specifically, I've done a lot of different grade levels. Um, My degree is for secondary education, so uh, middle school and high school. And I specialize in social studies, which is like history and geography, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as drama. So I didn't really focus on the science route while in school. Mm -hmm. Um, I think part of it was because I really only had interest in the environmental part of science, and I didn't really care about physics. I didn't really care about, you know, uh, the mathematical whatever. So I had to make a choice and yeah, I I didn't ultimately choose that, but I think 
as a teacher, you, there's so many little things you can do to model sustainability and a great eco outlook. Uh, little things like scrap paper, making sure that we're using every piece of paper as much as we can before it goes into the recycle or, okay, you broke your crayon. Well, let's try and use it as much as we can before we throw it in the bin. And, you know, teaching kids that just because something is broken, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't use it anymore and little things like that. So maybe not teaching biology or teaching um, sustainability specifically, but I think having a, an environmental outlook is still very important in a general sense as a teacher. And so moving fast forward to, to now, do you still uh, spend a lot of time in the outdoors or has that completely changed now? Obviously, excluding the pandemic, do you still have that outdoorsiness? I think I have a very particular situation because again, I'm living in Shanghai, which is a mega city. You know, there's 20, 24 million people in one city. So as you can imagine, there is no outdoor space. Mm. Um, as what I'm used to back home in Canada, where you can drive five minutes and there's several open fields, there's places you can walk your dogs. Here in Shanghai and in China in general, we are so limited with space. Mm. And not only space in general, but outdoor space due to air pollution and air quality it's not healthy to be outside, especially now in, in February, as we're recording this, the winter months, sometimes we have really, really hazy days. And it's not like you, sh you know, you are choosing to stay inside. It's like you have to, or else it, you know, it's not good for your health. So um, my love for the outdoors is still here. And it's something that I do miss the most about home sometimes is the ability to go outside and walk and see no one and just be outside. Um, that's not possible here at all. <laughs> so do you, do you get a little bit of claustrophobia living in a city with, you know, that many people compared to where you used to live in Canada? It was a huge shift for me. Um, People always talk about culture shock and that, you know, when I moved here, I was 23 and I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. And my first year, it was such a struggle. I mean, there's so many things you have to get used to. And now that I've been here for five years, I'm much more adapted to the living situation. And I mentally know that no matter where you go, there are going to be people. You go to the mall, it's going to be packed. It's like, Christmas day, Christmas Eve shopping every single day, like craziness. There's no parking spaces. There's just people everywhere. Um, so yeah, it was very hard for me, especially on like public transportation. Um, I've always had like my personal space and that was always respected back home in Canada. And here it can be 
very, very difficult because, you know, there are thousands of people trying to get on one bus or, you know, one metro line. And it's not their fault that there's 24 million people here and we're all trying to go somewhere. It's just the way it is. And yeah, it's something that I really had to adapt to. So moving on, we'll go into the second section. As as a young person living in Canada, you said you were spending a lot of time outdoors and stuff, and you're of my same uh, same generation as me. What was your technology usage like? So let's start off with the um, the clothing stuff. Um, you know, what sort of things would a, a, a young Canadian be out wearing? Because obviously, you've got those big shifts in winter clothes for winter clothes and then summer clothes as well. So yeah, hit on that a little bit. Um, yeah, there's always this big joke as a Canadian kid that you can never have a cute Halloween costume. Like, <laughs> I always wanted to be a princess or, you know, something really cute and fun. But it is so cold during Halloween, like 50% of the time, there's already snow on the ground. So it's always covered by, you know, snow pants, snow jacket, mitts, gloves, toque which is our word for like a woolly hat. (laughs) So no one could ever even see your costume. And as a kid, I remember being like so upset that no one could see my Barbie pink, like super cute outfit because I had to wear like 30 layers or else I would freeze my little butt off. So um, it's just admitting defeat at a young age. Um, (laughs) It's either you dress warm and you get candy or you cry about it at home looking cute. So you gotta pick your battles. Um never think about wearing did you never think about wearing the uh the, the thermals underneath the princess dress. Even then, oh no, there's no way. Um <laughs> I'm I think I was a pumpkin at least five years in a row because I could wear the pumpkin costume over my snow jacket yeah. and everyone could still see it. Did I want to be a pumpkin? No, but you know, <laughs> it's the only costume that worked. <sighs> That'll get you the nickname, pumpkin. Yeah, pumpkin. Uh, and then you grow up and you hit middle school. And again, you think you are the coolest person around. Mm. And in order to be cool in Canada, that means you don't wear the appropriate winter clothes and you stand outside during recess and you shiver do you look super cool maybe you know we had the the tiny like jackets with the big fluff on the hood Mm -hmm. those were super popular in my middle school days um that was like a fall autumn jacket but we would wear them in the winter to look cute and we paid the price for it but yeah (laughs) no no gloves no hat because you can't mess up your hair in middle school god forbid so there was this (laughs) point in middle school where all of the girls would just freeze outside and all of our teachers would yell at us be like where where's your jacket this is my jacket miss we'd be like okay But as as you grew up, did the um, did the winter clothing get thinner and and more thermally efficient anyway? 
or is it still just big massive down jackets um for me I still think it's like pretty thick heavy down jackets I think most of the people I know or my friends and family we just wear snowboarding jackets Mm -hmm. like we don't really do anything less than that because it's not worth it on on an average winter day it's going to be minus 20 minus 25 um this december it hit minus 50 degrees Mm. celsius like you walk outside and your eyelashes freeze so yeah um i think we are just so used to what we know and i'm sure that there's great technology and different jackets and thermals and uh things that are out there but for us it's just what we know and what we can afford Mm. Uh, again like winter attire is so expensive so that's another big part of it is you can't really afford to buy $300 snowboarding jackets every year so you buy one and you run it into the ground and then you buy another one so yeah I mean that was the same for my guiding jackets my first guiding jacket, there is absolutely no down um, where my uh, mitten harness used to go around. So where the elastic used to go around and you'd get sweaty, the the, the down has just disappeared. So it's just this thin layer of uh, fabric now. Um, so mm-hmm. it doesn't get used often in really cold environments anymore. Um, but yeah, no, that minus 50 stuff is uh, not no joke. I was out sledding um, in it and yeah you you cover everything i had this tiny little slit like this (laughs) it is miserable it is awful so um we'll hit the technology bit now or the digital technology as as a young young person you would have you wouldn't have been exposed to that to start with so you would have been out when when did it sort of start for you where you had maybe your first mobile phone or something along those lines I remember getting my first cell phone was when I was in grade eight. So I think year nine in the UK mm-hmm. and it wasn't even my cell phone. It was my mom's like extra work phone and I couldn't text on it. I could only call and I could only call for an emergency or else it would cost money. So, I mean, I had a phone, but I don't remember using it I think like my first cell phone that I used was definitely like high school like grade 10 and it was one of those like slider phones (laughs) which were so cool back in the day but now they're like obsolete but yeah that was uh, that's my memory of my first like digital device Um, other than that I think the only thing I had was like a digital camera Mm. And my family had a computer, but we didn't really use it that much. It was in the basement and it was like dial up internet because we didn't have much money at the time. So, you know, we had to cut the internet uh, usage. So yeah, I didn't have access to a heck of a lot of digital technology growing up. And so... I guess that means that it forces you to be outside a little bit more and um, and you have to sort of um, adapt to that 
did was it a big change when you like started moving to countries where technology was more prevalent i mean you're in china now and it's a complete sort of digital mess um uh so yeah when when did it sort of really start was it university where you started to really use technology um and how did that sort of make you feel when you sort of come from this sort of technologyless background where you know you've got dial-up broadband and yeah you've only just got a phone and stuff so how does that how did that change and how did that feel um yeah i think the major shift happened when I was in university. Um, I remember buying my first MacBook laptop and it was for school and I had a student loan. So I actually had money for the first time in my life. And I was like, oh yeah, this is what I'm getting. Like, this is what I need. And I did buy a MacBook and I still have it now. Like it's still working to this day. So for me, that was an amazing purchase. And I'm like patting myself on the back, like, well done, 20 year old Kelly, you know, that was a great purchase. And I remember a lot of the courses that you take as a teacher revolve around technology Mm. and being able to use technology in the classroom, especially. There was this huge buzzword. It's kind of still around now, but it's called 21st century learning. Mm -hmm. And it's this idea of preparing the students for the future and being able to keep up with the technology as it advances. And so they can use it effectively in their lives when they, you know, grow older. So I didn't have much technology up until university. And then I felt like I was catching up because all of these other teachers, they knew all of these apps, they knew all of these websites, all of these online resources. And I've never heard of any of these before. So it was a lot all at once. And I kind of felt defeated. I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be a good teacher because I don't know how to use Microsoft Excel. (laughs) And I still don't. Um, (laughs) So I think there's this huge pressure on teachers to be technology minded and, you know, advanced with it. Um, Some of the, the things I see teachers do with primary school kids in this day and age is insane um, how they can use iPads so easily and they know how to cut and create videos on iMovie or they know how to upload to a share drive or a cloud server. And I'm like, I, I don't even know how to do that. So how does a six-year-old, you know? So as a teacher, it's this uphill battle that as soon as you learn how to do something technology wise it's almost like it's dated already and then you have to just keep going through this cycle it's a lot of pressure so your your schooling then you didn't have any sort of ict lessons where you were learning basic um i guess computer skills no uh In Canada, we don't really have an ICT class, like a specific class. Mm. It's non-existent. It's kind of assumed that you will pick up those skills in other classes, uh, like English. 
maybe you're doing research on a topic to write an essay about. So, or you'd have to make a PowerPoint as a presentation. It was very much integrated into other subjects. And it was kind of assumed that mm -hmm. you knew how to do it. And if you didn't, it, it was a huge learning curve. So yeah, we don't have ICT as a specific class. Um, when I was growing up, it might have changed. Again, I haven't taught in Canada for the past five years, so maybe. But when I was growing up, uh, yeah, it's not not a thing. That's that's interesting because over in the UK, we started to have so year five, year six. Um, we started to have computers and they started teaching us basic computer skills. And then when you went to secondary school uh, or high school, um, you actually had specific, certainly for the first three years, you had specific ICT lessons. Not that I actually listened in any of those. You were trying to get onto miniclip.com or something to go and play games. Whilst, <laughs> um, but uh, they were trying to teach you basic skills and Excel and, and PowerPoint and, and Word. So it's quite interesting that there's a difference in the curriculum that, yeah, I guess that I suppose it internet maybe was still getting um, retrofitted to actually have not just dial up, have broadband and, and stuff like that. Um, and obviously Canada's so vast that putting infrastructure in is going to be a big cost. Yeah. I think another big part of it is cost. Uh, we only had, one computer lab and my school went from kindergarten to grade nine mm -hmm. so like you have 25 computers for 10 year groups of kids like it's not no <laughs> <laughs> so i think computers are much more readily available now so i think it's easier but back then like they were these huge bulky machines that yeah. were expensive so that could be another part of it was the area that I grew up in maybe didn't have enough funding for things like that as well. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we've talked a lot about how, you know, your technology uses has changed as you've grown up. Um, and do you, you were saying that, you know, you were having to catch up a lot with the technology that you were using when you went to uni. So you feel a massive lot of techno stress when you are, uh, um when you when you jumped into university um and you also do now because a lot of because we've our generation grew up without technology to start with and we were sort of integrated into it and you find it difficult now to keep up with you know a six-year-old because they grow up with it they've already got it so um yeah what sort of changes have you seen in society and and our culture your your perspective on it um related to this i think it's sometimes really scary just to take a step back and to look around um especially here in china if any given day if you just stop walking on a sidewalk and just look almost every single person is walking while looking at their phone or scrolling mm -hmm. on their phone. Um, if you're on the metro, the public transportation, every single person is on their phone. Um, it's just like every, everyone seems to be on it in, in one way or the other. If it's 
playing games, if it's uh, on social media, or even if it's for positive-based things like reading the news or listening to audiobooks or things like that, I, I just feel like it's constant and it's everywhere. And do you feel like if you were back in Canada, it would be the same sort of thing? Because obviously very westernized countries, we're certainly very technology-based now and everything is done on our phone. So compare that culture of being in China where every, everything is connected to being in Canada, in, you know, in the north, in Alberta. Would it be the same? Is there a, is there a comparison? I think in my personal opinion, I think that there's still an overwhelming generational divide. So I think that a lot of the Canadian population is older and they aren't necessarily on their phones ever or at all um, Mm. while out and about and, and things like that. So I don't think I would see it as much just because like sheer population density, I'm exposed to more people here. So it might skew what I see. Um, So it's a hard question. I'm not sure if it would be, I don't think it would be the same extent, but, you know, growing up, it was always that joke where your parents would always say, oh, you young people always on your phone. And like, now I feel like I'm that person, like, oh, everyone's on their phone, (laughs) including me sometimes. I mean, I'm bad for it as well so um i think there really is a need for a divide and a break from technology um because it's just convenient and it's something you don't automatically think about when you wake up in the morning you roll over you grab your phone and you start scrolling like it's just mindless we don't even realize that we're doing it anymore but i think it's in general, like everyone has access to it now and it's much more common. So I think it might be the same anywhere you go nowadays. So I've discussed with previous guests that there is a good side, a bad side and a um, like a neutral side to technology. And it's interesting that you say that there should be sort of a gap or a divide. Oh, that's it. Because there's a level of boredom where creativity comes in and so people nowadays they're if they're bored they go straight onto their phone and we we discussed that there's a lot of imagination that has already been processed for you so if you go onto youtube for example and you watch um you watch a video uh they, they basically just turn around and go well i'll watch that it's educational which is a good thing but at the same time they've done all the imagination for you. You don't have to think, basically. So do you see, as, as you've grown up, do you see a shift in people struggling to be bored, if that makes sense? I, I do see it in some aspects. Um, certainly, when I was in university, I was also waitressing um, at a local pizza place that I love and miss dearly. But, um, you know, families would bring their kids and instead of, you know, doing the coloring sheet or something to keep them occupied, it was, here's your iPad, here's your headphones, watch your Paw Patrol or whatever, (laughs) whatever it was back then. And 
at my restaurant, we even had like little baskets of Lego pieces. So the kids could build Legos while waiting at the table with their parents. And the kids didn't even want that. It was all iPad, iPad, iPad. So um, with the younger generations, I think it's a lot more like blaringly obvious. Um, But I think back to even when I was younger and my parents would come home, they turn on the television and we'd watch TV together for hours and hours. Is it really different that we're doing the same thing, but we're watching YouTube instead of, you know, program television? It like, is it that much different is something that I kind of reflect on a lot. Is it just this generation's norm as it was when we were growing up? Because one of my guests said that uh, the introduction of newspapers and books would be the death of social. This was in the early 1900s. Having books and stuff would be the death of social interaction. Well, clearly it wasn't because lots of people still discuss stuff. But yeah. the the interesting bit about if you read a book uh, or a newspaper, you have to use your imagination. You have to use your brain to think and picture what's in there. Whereas, like like you say, you've got that norm. It is a norm now for uh, the our generation now or the generation ahead of us. But I just I just wonder whether or not that's the thinking side gone because someone's already done it they've given you the content mm. whereas if you were reading a book or something you have to imagine what this person is saying or the picture that they had in their head so that's mm. where I was going with that um so what's what's it like being in china and and the technology usage that you have over there because you know in the western news we get a lot of that it's very dominated their society by technology. So just, just run us through that a little bit. Absolutely. So for me, the biggest change about living here in China and living back home is I don't need to bring anything else with me except my phone. My <laughs> phone is my wallet. My phone is my key card to get into my house. My wallet can order me an Uber or a taxi here. Um, I can also, you know, directly pay just by scanning a QR code. It comes straight from my account. Um, I have not carried cash on me while living in China for probably three years. I've never needed to have cash. Everything is digital. You scan a code, it comes straight out of your account. If you want to split a check, you can send money to a, a contact instantly. The convenience of technology here is unmatched to anything I've seen anywhere else in the world. It is incredible. And I guess, do you feel pressured into being part of that when you're over in China or just in general? Because I feel like the society and culture, you end up following the norms of of said culture or society. So do you feel like you are behind if you're not playing the, the latest computer game or, or watching the latest TV series? Um, I think for me, especially being a foreigner, I don't speak Chinese very well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I've tried to learn, but <laughs> it's very, very difficult. And so for me, being able to just 
pay for things without having to actually talk to someone. As sad as it sounds, it is so nice. I don't have to struggle with trying to string a sentence together in broken Mandarin. I can show them the code. They show me how much it is. I say, yep, okay. And the transaction is done. Mm -hmm. So for me as a foreigner in China, it it's liberating because I don't have anxiety anymore about not being able to communicate. Everything is done digitally instantly. And Again, with my phone, I could not live without Google Translate. I could not live without Google Translate. Like Google Translate, you can type. You can also take a picture of Chinese Mandarin and it scans it and it will spit it out to you in English. It is amazing. I don't know how foreign people have lived in China before this time. It must have been so much more difficult, but... Yeah, again, I could not survive without my phone here. It would not be possible. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because you think 10, 15 years ago, Google Translate didn't exist. And any sort of translation software wasn't particularly great. So I think in doing these podcasts, there's a lot of you, you find out what people's point of view are on the convenience that it provides. And so in a lot of ways, we've made it so much easier to be connected. Uh, and even when you go to a foreign country, you know, Google Translate has a, an option where you can talk to it and actually have a conversation and it will flip between the two languages. Um, so I think that's, that's quite amazing that, you know, barriers to go and travel now have been broken down because you can speak the language, you know, um, so it's amazing to hear that it's it's actually very liberating to be part of a society where you can't speak the language, but you can do everything that you would normally do in a country where you could speak the native language, basically. Mm -hmm. So interesting, very interesting. Right. I think we'll wrap it up there. We've covered okay. we've covered a great a, a great many topics there. Um so at the end of my podcast, I asked the guests. Uh, an ambiguous question. If you could live off grid anywhere in the world for a year, um, not have to worry about money uh, or your job, you can go back to that. Where would you go and what would you do? Oh my gosh. Oh, so many options. For me, I've always been a beach bum. I've always loved the ocean, um, probably because I grew up in the frozen tundra which is Canada and never saw a beach for years and years um so I just love the beach so if there was an empty beach house I don't even care where Greece Thailand wherever um that's definitely where I would be for sure yeah and and how does the off-grid bit sound to you uh I think I could do it for a little while but you know I do like a, a nice hot shower and as a, a female, I do like to do my hair and do my makeup and, uh, you know, things like that. So I think over time I would miss, do I personally think I could live off grid? No. no. Do I commend everyone that does? Absolutely. I'm like so jealous that they can do that. Um, it's something I wish I could do, but uh, to be completely realistic, I don't think it's for me. 
Fair enough. All right. Well, perfect. Um, thanks for coming on. That's much appreciated. And you've just started yourself up a YouTube channel as well, haven't you? Um, educational based. Do you want to just tell us about that? Yes, um, it is a definite work in progress. It's something that I've started just on the side. Again, I am a teacher and I love to create engaging and fun videos for my students. And I figured why not share it with other people? So I recently started a YouTube channel where I take popular songs and I do kind of parodies and I change the lyrics so it fits in with um, school content. So it's called The Cringy Classroom because I'm very cringe, as my middle schoolers would say. Um, so I really embrace that. And that's what I named myself. So um, yeah, a couple of educational videos, uh, songs. I hope that more people will check that out. But again, there's only like two up there right now. I got a lot of work to do. Well, I've listened to them. I think they're quite good. So <laughs> thank you. And that's the cringy classroom over on YouTube. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you. Big thank you again for Kelly for joining us on the Unplugged Debate. So until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>